Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Hey, good evening, everyone. Welcome along to Gateway. So glad you're here. Um, I started a series last Sunday that we've called, What's That About? And, um, and I'm filling in the blanks with some issues that have to do with the end of the age. Uh, when, when you come to talking about the end of the age, as I mentioned last week, there generally are three kinds of people. There are those who are frightened of it. And I had somebody come up to me last week and just say, you know what, I, I've never been able to read the book of Revelation. It just frightens me. And uh, that's, that's not unusual. People just... Um, are petrified about the end of the age and what it might mean. Then there are those who just really don't give a toss. Yeah, it was whatever, who cares? Life goes on, I'm not particularly interested in the end of the age. And then often there are those who can't talk about anything else. And somewhere in the middle is a place that we should find ourselves. Not where we're obsessed, obviously, but not where we're ignorant either. And uh, so I thought I'd, you know, given the number of conspiracy theories that are raging around COVID-19 and, and seem to preoccupy people on the internet, I thought I'd talk about some concepts that have to do with the end of the age. So I started last week talking about Daniel's 70 weeks. It's kind of diving in the deep end, to be honest, but the reason I started with Daniel's 70 weeks is people's interpretation of that passage of scripture affects everything downstream. And uh, I've mentioned a couple of times, you know, books like Left Behind and Late Great Planet Earth, a lot of the preachers that you see on TV, the, the take they have on the end of the age is related to what they think about Daniel chapter 9, Daniel 70 weeks. So although it's diving in incredibly deep right at the beginning, I wanted to start there because everything else seems to flow from that. Last week I talked about the fact that... Um, uh, Daniel's chapter 9 breaks into three major movements. There's Daniel's prayer, there's Gabriel's presence, and then there's Gabriel's prophetic word. And I shared how th through that whole chapter there is one major theme, and it's the theme of the covenant. Daniel is praying because Israel are in exile, and they've been exiled because they have um, violated the stipulations of the old covenant, and there were curses associated with it. You can read it in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. Blessed if you do this, cursed if you do that. Well, they did that. The curses had come to them. Now Daniel is praying. He's been in captivity in, uh, in Babylon for nearly 70 years. Jeremiah said they would be there for a, a period like that. And he's now asking God to remember the covenant mercies as he had remembered the covenant curses. So there's this theme right through about covenant. And then Gabriel turns up and starts talking about covenant. And what I suggested last week is he hasn't suddenly switched and started talking about another covenant at the end of the age. He's talking about what Daniel is praying about. Um, I'll read the prophecy, okay, if you could put it up there for me. Um, Gabriel says to Daniel, 77s are decreed for your people. Let me just stop there and take that word 77s, okay? Now, if we were in English, we might use the word uh, heptads, or we could use a term like dozens, 70 dozens, 
Dozens of what? Well, we aren't told. And, and this, the, 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 this prophecy actually doesn't tell us either. It's 70 groups of sevens, but we don't know what the sevens are. We've got to work that out as we go. So 70 sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgressions, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. We dealt with that last week, and I suggested those six clauses were all fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus. The language is that of the high priest making atonement, and we know that Jesus is our high priest, and he's made atonement, and he's dealt with those six clauses. Now, somebody might say to me, Don, none of those things are, are, are there in their fullness. You know, we, sin hasn't actually been dealt with. Transgressions haven't actually been dealt with. They're, they're continuing on. And I'd say to you, yes, but judicially, provisionally, in the work of the cross, Jesus has dealt with those things. Now, we, wait, we await the consummation of them, but they have begun. And, and without going into a great explanation, some of you at least who have sort of toyed with theology will have heard the phrase, the now but not yet of theology. And that basically has to do with the fact that Jesus, in Jesus, God has acted dramatically into our world, and the kingdom of God has come. Has it come in its fullness? No, not yet. But it has started. It is here now. We await its fullness. And with all of those six clauses that we looked at, Jesus has brought those into reality. We ultimately wait their fulfillment. So we talked about that last week. This week I want to pick up from uh, where it says, know and understand this from the time that word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. There will be seven sevens or heptads and 62 sevens or heptads. It will be rebuilt with the streets and a trench, but in the times of trouble. After the 62 sevens or heptads, or another word, by the way, you could put in there is seasons. After 62 seasons, the anointed one will be put to death death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one season or seven or heptad. In the middle of that seven or season, he will put an end to sacrifices and offerings and on the wing of abominations shall be the one who makes desolate even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. You can understand why that is an incredibly difficult passage. But it's so important and affects everything downstream, okay? So Gabriel gives Daniel the start point of this marked-off period of 70 seasons. There's a lot of disagreement as to which decree or command Gabriel is referring to that will start this whole process, and there are at least four possible options. We don't have time to delve into it in the manner it deserves, but let me give you my start point and the start point of many scholars. And uh, it's an opinion, um, I'll tell you why I hold it in a moment, but it's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 22 and 23 where it says, Thus the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah came true, that the land must rest for 70 years to make up for the years when the people refused to observe the Sabbath. They had just been 70 years in bondage, and that bondage was a result of 490 years where they had refused to have the Sabbath year. 
Every seventh year was supposed to be a Sabbath year where the land lay fallow. And the children of Israel had ignored it. So God basically says, well, I'll collect them all up and I'll have them in one foul swoop. You can go into exile in in Babylon and the land will lay fallow for 70 years. So a 490-year period had just finished. And then as it finishes... The first year of Cyrus of Persia, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus to make this proclamation throughout his kingdom, putting it in writing. All the kingdoms of the earth have been given to me by the Lord God of heaven, and he has instructed me to build him a temple in Jerusalem in the land of Judah. All among you who are the Lord's people, return to Israel for this task, and the Lord be with you. So one cycle of 77s has just finished, and I'm suggesting to you that that decree starts the next cycle of 70 seasons, 77s. The decree of Cyrus was the termination of the 70 years of captivity and the beginning point of the word that Gabriel spoke to to, uh, Daniel. Now, some people reject that decree. They say, no, no, it's not Cyrus, um, because the decree that Cyrus issues speaks about rebuilding the temple, but it doesn't speak to the rebuilding of the city, and so they pick another, uh, another decree. But I would like to suggest to you that while that passage says the rebuilding of the temple, it strongly implies that the city will be built also. And Ezra's enemies, when they come to complain about what the returned Jews are doing, they say they're they're rebuilding this rebellious and wicked city. And further to that, Isaiah prophesied 200 years before Cyrus was born, a remarkable prophecy. And he speaks to this individual, names him, and says, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall do all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So when people say, ah, it's not that decree because it doesn't talk about rebuilding the city, well, it does, actually, prophetically. And in Isaiah 45, verse 13, I've raised Cyrus up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways, and he shall build my city. He shall let my captives go, not for price, not for reward, says the Lord of hosts. So there's no reason, in my thinking at least, why we would reject that decree. It's the end of the last season. Naturally, it begins a new one, and it meets all of the specifications. Now, what a lot of people do is they assume that since it's seven sevens or 77s, the sevens must be years. They work that out at 490 years, and then they take Cyrus's date and extend it out 490 years and try and find out what happened at the end of the exact 490-year period. And I want to suggest to you that that actually is not something that you can do easily because of two major hurdles. Now, the first hurdle is that we actually have absolutely no reliable chronology for that period of time. Every chronological system covering that period that we are dealing with from the beginning of the Persian monarchy through to Christ is largely a matter of guesswork. Most of the historians who, who study this period rely on it. On, they navigate it by using the, the dates from a man called Ptolemy who lived in the second century AD. He was a Greek astronomer. But 
Ptolemy doesn't even pretend to have the right dates. He doesn't know the lengths of the kings that reigned in Persia. He guesses them, and, and he's quite honest in saying that. He thinks that it's probably about 200 years, but there are other people in that time, Clement of Alexandria, Josephus the history, historian, and, and possibly even Daniel himself later in his book, who would say he's way overestimated. It's not 205 years. It's probably much more like 52 years. So the difficulty in trying to calculate dates is that we simply, we simply don't have them, and we need to be honest about that. The second major problem that we have trying to get an exact date for the end point of that 490 possible years period is that the ancient peoples, including the Hebrew people, didn't function with the chronological precision that we do and that we expect from them. It just isn't the way they thought. Even the 70 years of captivity that Jeremiah prophesied about, historians say probably wasn't exactly 70 years. It may have been as short as 58. It may have been as long as 66. And you know what? We moderns freak out. We say, oh, no, 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 but the word of God says 70 years. It's got to be 70 years. Otherwise, maybe the Bible isn't true. Well, for the ancients, that isn't how they thought. It was an approximate designation of length, and they would never stress if it wasn't exact. It, it's close, and, that's, and they are happy with that. For numeric, numerical exactitude wasn't their point. I'm, I'm wondering, and, and some scholars say this, that the time periods mentioned shouldn't be thought of chronologically and with with, with the precision of, of a calendar, but much more symbolically and theologically. You know, the numbers that Gabriel uses in talking to Daniel are highly symbolic ones. Seven, 70, 490. These are symbolic numbers in that culture and in the scriptures. Sam Storms in his book, Kingdom Come, says, in Mesopotamian culture, reflected in Old Testament scriptures, 70 years refers primarily to a certain period of desolation followed by the visitation of God. In addition to that, 490 years is actually 10 jubilee eras. Every, after every 49th year, they had a whole sabbatical year, a year of jubilee with great celebration. People were released and, and freed. And that period of 490, that 77th, is 10 of those. And again, 10 is ordinal perfection. And, and it's highly possible that this is symbolic and that this period of 70 seasons brings us to the fulfillment of Jubilee in the Messiah. It's really interesting that Jesus in his first public sermon in Nazareth gets up and in Luke 4 he says, the acceptable year of the Lord's favor has come in me. And everybody understood that he was speaking about Jubilee. He's the consummate Jubilee salvation of God. So again, Storms goes on and says, the 70 weeks are not designated to establish precise chronological parameters for redemptive history. Rather, they serve to evoke a theological image, namely that in Messiah Jesus, God will work to bring about the final jubilee of redemptive history. Now, I know that messes with some people's heads because they think, no, well, if God says it's 70, 77, 490 and it's years, it's got to be exact and they work it out exactly. Exactly. I'm trying to be honest, however, 
And, and, and I, I don't think I can pretend to give you exact dates when A, I don't think they can be substantiated and B, I'm not even sure that that's what Gabriel was talking about. So what Gabriel does do is he says there's gonna be a period of 70 seasons and it's gonna begin with this decree of Cyrus and then he breaks it into a period of seven seasons, 62 seasons and one season. Most people who study this say in the first seven seasons, that's, what the, that's the period that we call the restoration years, where people like Ezra and Nehemiah um, and, and Haggai and Zechariah, they all went back from Babylon to Jerusalem and started to rebuild both the temple and the city. And it was a difficult time. It was a time of trouble, just as Gabriel said it would be. So that's the first season of seven seasons. Then there's 62 seasons or heptads. Again, most scholars say that's the intertestamental period. That's the period of about 400 odd years when there is no prophetic voice from Malachi through to John the Baptist. So if you add those two together, a season of seven, a season of 62, you come to 69. Gabriel states that at the end of that time, 69 seasons, that will bring us to the manifestation of Messiah. And people do work it out in years and they come up with all kinds of things. I'm not going to bother going there. But I want to tell you, when you come to the Messiah being manifested, there's, in, there's really only one incident in Jesus' life that you would say, this is where Messiah is manifest. This is where he is revealed. And it's at his baptism. It's not at his birth, because that largely went under the radar. But at his baptism, he comes out publicly. The Father speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. John the Baptist points his finger at him and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus' public ministry is launched. That's the time that he is manifest to the people of Israel. And Jesus begins preaching and says, the time is fulfilled. What did he have in mind? I wonder that he had Gabriel's words in mind. The seasons have come, and it is the 69th, the end of the 69th season, the manifestation of Messiah. Now, Scripture makes plain, Daniel, uh, sorry, Gabriel says to Daniel, that after 69 seasons have gone, in the 70th season, Messiah will be cut off. And we know that Jesus' ministry lasted approximately three and a half years, and after three and a half years, he was literally cut off. Cut off is a way of describing um, penal substitution, a penal death. It's a violent death. And Messiah was cut off during that 70th season. Then after that, it says, verse 26 and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. All right, so we've got six, 62 seasons, uh, sorry, seven seasons. 62 seasons brings us to the manifestation of Messiah. We are now in the 70th season. In the middle of the 70th season, the Messiah is cut off. Then we've got this verse. And I'd like to suggest to you that it's, 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 it's parenthetical. It should be in brackets because it's, an, it's a thought that interrupts the main flow of the prophecy. And it speaks about a people who will come who will destroy the city. Now, there's two possibilities for this people. One is that it's the people of the Messiah, 
that, that we've been talking about all, all up till this point, the people of the Messiah will destroy the city. And if you know anything about history, in AD 70, when the city was destroyed, there was massive infighting among the people in Jerusalem, and Josephus, the historian, says that infighting was the reason Jerusalem was destroyed. So, yeah, that's a possibility. The other possibility, and probably is more likely, is that the prince who will come and his people are Titus, the Roman prince, and the Roman soldiers. And they came, surrounded Jerusalem. While the Jews were fighting inside, these guys were building ramparts on the outside. And in AD 70, they burst through the city, completely destroyed it. Having... having then closed the brackets on that portion of the prophecy, Gabriel goes back to the main burden of it. The main burden of, of the whole prophecy is Messiah. He will fulfill these six things, and he will come after this time, and in the last season, he'll be crucified in the middle of it. Then a people will come, destroy the city, and then it picks up and says, he will confirm the covenant with many. In the middle of the week, he'll bring the sacrifice and offerings to an end. What covenant are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the covenant that Daniel prayed about and that Gabriel started to talk to. You know, in Romans chapter 15, verse 8, listen to the words. It's almost an exact replica of what Gabriel said. Now I say that Jesus was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the covenant made unto the fathers. Malachi said that this Messiah who would come would be the messenger of the covenant. And remember in the upper room, Jesus says, this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. Gabriel's not talking about some different covenant. He's talking about the covenant that's run right through the burden of Daniel's prayer and Gabriel's word. And the person who confirms the covenant is Messiah. He is the climax of all of the Old Testament promises. Paul says all of the promises in the Old Testament find their yes and amen in Jesus. So he's the one then that stops the offerings and the sacrifices. Well, how did he do that? Well, we know that as soon as Jesus died, all of the sacrifices that had, been, uh, that had been carried on for millennia in the temple suddenly become null and void. He is the sacrifice of all sacrifices. Hebrews says that up to this point in time, every year goats and bulls had to be offered because they couldn't take away sin. But his sacrifice takes it away. And so from that point on, all of the sacrifices of the temple are null and void. They're, they're stopped effectively in the purposes of God. The latter part of the prophecy, verse 27 onwards, is, is very difficult language. It's hard to understand, but the main prediction is that the city and the temple would be, would be made desolate for a protracted period, and that there was an agency or a force that God called an abomination that would, that would affect that desolation. And the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Romans under their prince Titus fulfilled that part of the prophecy. When you understand Daniel's prophecy in that way, you understand Daniel's prayer, uh, you know, the burden of covenant, Gabriel's prophetic word, which was about covenant and how long it would be and, and the six things that would occur and that in the middle of the last season, 
the, the Messiah would be cut off and, and, and sacrifice and offerings would stop and, and the city would be completely desolate. It's, it's, it's relatively straightforward, relatively simple. Now, there are a number of problems or at least one problem that immediately comes to mind and people say uh, all of the time, Don, if Messiah's cut off in the middle of that season... Okay, he ministered for three and a half years, and if the season happens to be seven years, which a lot of people think it is, that leaves three and a half years. What are you going to do with that three and a half years? Because in your plan, you go up to that point, stop, and there's three and a half years left over. What are you going to do with that? And I'm going to suggest that you, don't, you do nothing with it. You don't have to do anything with it, all right? Um, we were told... These six clauses would happen within that specified period. They did. We are told Messiah would be cut off in the middle of the last season. He was. We are told that sacrifices and offerings would be null and void from that moment on. They were. All within that specified period. After that, we were told the Romans would come and destroy Jerusalem and the temple. They did. End of story. You don't have to worry about the last three and a half years. It's really important to remember in Scripture, it habitually disregards fractional remainders of prophesied time units once the prophecy is fulfilled. Let me try and illustrate. If I say to you, next year, Fairfield Bridge will collapse and fall into the Waikato River. Hope it doesn't. But let's say that. And so it happens in January. You, you guys are going to go, wow, that was some prophecy. Nobody's going to come up to me and say, well, Don, that happened in January. What about the other 11 months? It's going to like, what? I told you it would happen in the year, and it did. Yeah, no, but there's 11 months left. Who cares? The bridge is in the river. When Jesus said to his disciples, three days, three nights, oh, on the third day, I will rise again. And we sing a song this morning that says, at the break of dawn, he did. At the break of dawn, on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. I don't know anybody who sat around the tomb saying, yeah, that's interesting, but what about the other 24 hours or 22 hours? You know, nobody cares. It was on the third day, as he said, and nobody is interested in the leftover period. Remember that this prophecy isn't about specific years, but seasons. And in the last season, what was prophesied happened. And you don't have to worry about the fact there's, there's some left over. Now, that's going to be a real surprise for some of you who have been told that at the end of the age, there will be this season with a really important, that'll be really important. It'll be seven years broken up halfway through with three and a half years. And it's, you know, and, and uh, if you've read the books left behind, I've seen the movies or played the board game. If you've read um, Late Great Planet Earth or if you've listened to lots and lots of preachers, now they will tell you a really interesting thing. They will tell you that the six things that we, we looked at Messiah having completed in his act on the cross actually haven't been fulfilled. So they go to the end of the age, okay? And then they say that time period goes right up to 69 seasons, and then you sever the 70th one off, the last one, and you move that to the end of the age. 
And if you've, if you've read anything about end time events, you, you'll know that the church gets raptured at the beginning of that seven year period and a, a figure called Antichrist comes along and he makes a covenant with the people of Israel, allowing them peace and allowing them to build their temple and offer sacrifices. But halfway through, three and a half years in, he breaks the covenant, sets up some kind of image that's the abomination of desolations and the world is thrown into absolute chaos for the last three and a half years years. That's left behind. And, and uh, I, I don't know how they do that. I don't know how they take that last seven years and sever it from the 69 and move it to the end of the age. There is absolutely no basis for that. I, I was going to use the word, it is completely unprecedented, but I'm sick of that word, okay? And you are too. But it is. There is no prophecy in Scripture where a time period is given that, it, that it's not consecutive, continuous. Imagine if, imagine if when Jeremiah said to the children of Israel, you'll be 70 years in captivity. <clears throat> so they count off. And let's assume it was exactly 70. We know it wasn't, but let's assume it was. So we get 67, 68, 69, and suddenly suspended. What do you mean suspended? We've got one year to go. No, I'm sorry, there's a gap in it. And, and well, how long is the gap? Well, we don't know, but just hang around. So I beg your pardon? You, you said 70, and now it's 69. I'm expecting 70. Yeah, I know, but we're suspending it. It's like... The, I think I'd be disappointed. <laughs> but that's exactly what they do. And, and so what happens is, apparently, Daniel's 69 weeks, and then his prophetic clock, God's prophetic clock, apparently stops ticking. And it stops ticking because the children of Israel, God's earthly people, reject their Messiah. So God stops the clock, turns away from the earthly people, Israel, and now suddenly, plan B. He's going to have a spiritual heavenly people, you and me, the church. And so he deals with you and me, the church, through the church age until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. And then by rapture, he removes the church. And then he turns back to the seven years where he deals with his earthly people, Israel. And I want to just suggest to you that is complete, absolute supposition. Number one, God does not have two people, earthly and spiritual. You cannot read Paul in the New Testament and come up with the idea that God has two people. I'm sorry it is not there. And if you don't believe me, just go home and read Ephesians chapter 2 tonight. And if you can read Ephesians chapter 2 and come up with the idea that God has two people, then you're definitely not reading the same Bible I'm reading. It's, it's, it's not there. And I'd like to suggest to you that you just cannot sever a prophetic word that's supposed to be continuous like that. Now, the people who teach left behind would say, hang on a minute, Don, hang on a minute. Isaiah does that. Well, you know, there's a passage in Isaiah 61 where it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me, you know, to heal the sick, da, 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 to bring the acceptable year of the Lord and the vengeance of our God. When Jesus gets up in the synagogue of Nazareth and he preaches that, he goes right through to the acceptable year of the Lord and then he stops. And people would say the reason he stops is because he didn't come to bring the vengeance of our God. That's the second coming. So first coming, second coming, separated. And Jesus does it. There you go, Don. 
there's the separation. Well, it was like that Isaiah was looking at a mountain range and he saw one and then behind it he saw another peak and what he didn't realize is the valley between the two. Big difference though between Isaiah and Daniel. Isaiah doesn't give any timeline. Daniel does. And when there is timeline, we expect that it will be continuous, that there's there's no reason for a break. You can't just break it like that. As I say, when Jeremiah prophesied 70 years, it was continuous. When the children of Israel were told that they'd be in the wilderness 40 years wandering because of their sin, imagine the disappointment if it got to 38, 39, and God said, I've suspended it. Well, for how long, God? Well, I don't know, I'll tell you. But just keep wandering. Of course he didn't. At the end of the 40 years, they came in. The seven years of of Joseph's dreams were continuous. The three days and three nights of Jesus were continuous, consecutive. When there is a definitive time measurement given in Scripture, it's always understood to be consecutive and continuous. And there is no warrant whatsoever for breaking that 69 seasons up and taking one season and sticking it at the end of the age. There's no need to do it. As we explained, it's all there in the 70 seasons. It's about Messiah. It's not about some covenant that an antichrist makes with Israel at the end of the age. That's its supposition, and it's built so feebly on this passage. When you move the last season to the end of the age, it it changes the the prophecy dramatically. Suddenly, the one who confirms the covenant is not the Messiah, who is the climax and confirmation of the covenant. It's suddenly now him, Antichrist, making a covenant with the nation of Israel. And as I say, it's, it's absolutely supposition. It requires, of course, that there will be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And you hear people, and, and you know, they're talking. Even nowadays, people are saying that at least $5 million are being given by you know, some outfit in the States for the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem because it's required for Jesus to come back. And, and, I, and I think, have these people ever read the book of Hebrews? Does it, have, have they ever read John's gospel where Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in th- three days? And he was talking about his body. That temple is over. When he left it, he said, your house is left unto you desolate. And he turned around and went away because he is now sacred space. All that the temple was finds its fulfillment in Jesus. He's the place where heaven and earth meets. He's the place where atonement is made. He's the place where forgiveness is asked for and granted. It's, it's him in his body. And then Paul picks that up and says, we, the body of Christ, are the temple of God. There is no warrant scripturally for the physical rebuilding of a temple in Jerusalem. It's just like, why would God want to do that? It's the repudiation of everything that he's done in Jesus. And I'm sorry, but I cannot read the New Testament and believe that he has an interest in it. Well, so, well, Don, you know, you know does, that prophecy does talk about the abomination of desolations. And, and isn't that what the Antichrist will do in this rebuilt temple? no. No, it's not. You know what? Jesus told us what the abomination of desolations is. You don't have to hang around and wonder. He told us what it is. In Matthew chapter 24, you listen to this. 
And I'll read you three passages, one from Matthew, one from Mark, one from Luke. They all talk about exactly the same thing with one slight change inspired by the Holy Spirit that gives us the answer to, well, what is the abomination of desolations? Matthew, when you therefore see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoso reads, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him who is in the housetop or on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Mark, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let him that reads understands. Then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains and let him that is on the housetop not go down into his house, neither enter therein to take anything out of his house. They're talking about exactly the same thing. Identical language. Luke picks it up. When you see, and he doesn't say the abomination of desolations. He tells us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what it is. When you see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let them not that are in the countries enter thereinto. This is exactly the same language. Mark and Matthew talk about the abomination of desolations. Luke tells us what it is. He says it's the armies that will surround Jerusalem. Remember Gabriel's promise or prophecy? There will come a prince and his people and they will desolate the city. Jesus is now saying that'll be it. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, understand this is the season of desolation that Gabriel spoke of. And you know, Josephus, the historian, tells us that the Christians of that time understood. And when they saw the Roman armies coming, they fled the city. And they say that not one Christian perished in the destruction of Jerusalem, which actually killed well over a million people. The Christians heard the word of the Lord through Jesus, through Gabriel's prophecy to Daniel. They saw it, they fled. The people who remained were butchered. They said there weren't even enough trees to make crosses for them. When you read it like this, the whole prophecy, for me at least, makes sense. The prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks has its burden as Messiah. It's about what he would accomplish and when he would do it. And as you look at it, it's exactly what happened. The whole idea that somehow the time of the fulfillment of this prophecy is in the future is, is incredibly flimsy. The whole idea that God has turned from his precious earthly people to now take up plan B, which is his church, the, the, the spiritual people, has no basis in Scripture. You, as I said before, you cannot read Paul. I'm sorry, you cannot read Paul and get that idea. God has one people. He has one olive tree. And the, the, the natural balances, unbelieving Israel have been broken, on, broken off, and the, the, the unbelieving Gentiles have been engrafted in. It's one olive tree, not two. He's got one olive tree, not an orchard. And you and I have been engrafted into the story of Israel. That's why Paul calls us the Israel of God, the true Israel of God. And that's why James, writing in his letter, wrote to people and said, you are the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Like, what kind of language is that, James? Well, your role now is people of Israel. You have been engrafted into Israel's story, and God has one people, those who put their faith in Jesus. He has one way of salvation, not two. I'll talk about this more because when you start talking about the church being plan B, my goodness, that deserves a couple of sermons. Thanks for listening. 
If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.